Greetings, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. In this episode, I talk with Tron FX animator Chris Cassidy. Chris had recently finished work on Star Wars before joining the FX animation team on Tron, where he crafted 55 effects shots. Chris animated sparks in tank battle scenes. He created electric echoes from Flynn's body when the guard jabs him during the entry port scene. Chris did the long streak trailing the disc Tron catches behind his head. Tron was the film in which Chris honed his craft. He created sparks that fall with gravity. He made the scene where Sark's brains spill out after Tron defeats him. You will love Chris's telling of how he decided to do that. And remember Pac-Man in Sark's War Room map? That was Chris! Join us as Chris recalls being at Disney, details his effects work for Tron, and closes by telling us about the intro video he made for Tron's 30th anniversary party. Welcome to the I.O. Tower. Greetings, Chris, and thank you for joining me on the I.O. Tower today. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here, as they say. Chris, you were an animator on Tron. Can you talk some about what you did as an animator? I was indeed an animator on Tron in a small department, and I'm going to say there was a dozen of us, 15 of us or something, of which I was part of it, and they brought in people from the outside. So I was part of a wave of people that were coming onto the lot from other places, and this certainly would include, you know, Richard Taylor and all of his associates that he worked with at Robert Abel's, and this would be like the scene coordinators that you've talked to, John Grower, right, and all that sort of stuff. Robert Abel School, if you will, had a large influence on this because this was all going to be a backlit, uh, all done with backlit techniques, which, which the Robert Abel Company had practically invented and certainly developed and taken to a new level, you know, with candy apple neon and these things that you've heard about from Richard Taylor. Right. They put the word out to get some animators because they're going to have to staff up and have some kind of an animation department. Of course, the whole thing is going to be rotoscoped. But there's, there's a call for animated effects. I was lucky enough to have crossed paths with Richard Taylor a few months before. I was working with Peter Coran on, with visual concept engineering. He and I had sort of created that company. And we were just beginning, just starting our careers. The reason Peter and I knew each other, we'd both gone to CalArts. And there's a small list, a short list of people who went to CalArts who were lucky enough to stumble into the movie Star Wars. Ah, that's a whole nother story and a whole nother film. <laughs> anyway, I didn't have much credits under my belt. I was 28 years old, I guess, and I worked on Star Wars at age 24. So I hadn't been around that long. But Richard Taylor literally came through a building I, I was I was at. He'd come to um, see Pete Grant, I think, and I was working there. And I had some pencil tests on the Moviola. And he just passed by and I showed him some sparks that I'd been animating. Ah. He was really surprised. He went, oh, I didn't know you animated. Oh, that's pretty good. And uh, so he remembered me and rang me up. So I got thrown in with these other animators that had been like filmation guys. Okay. But I didn't know anything about who these guys were, where they came from, or what their experience was. I just knew that I was a pretty green uh, neophyte and uh-huh. barely worked on anything. And I didn't consider myself an animator. Um 
I had done some animation and Richard had seen some little sparks that I'd done, but I was really just starting off. And I thought, I can't work at Disney. That's the Rolls Royce of animation. That's, you got to be really good to work at Disney. And I was convinced that it was only a matter of time before they threw me out. <laughs> I thought, I can't animate my way out of a paper bag. I don't, I'm not as good as these guys. This is Disney. I couldn't believe I was stepping onto the lot. I was on the lot where they'd made Fantasia. You know, I was walking down Dopey Drive, <laughs> Disney Cafeteria. The back lot was still there, and you could walk through the back lot during lunchtime and go walk through the Western Town sets and the Flubber sets. And wow. There was all sorts of interesting things to find on the back lot. So here I was in this at Disney. Again, it felt like this transition period. I'm walking through the lot that has all this history. And you can see the history around you again, you know, these famous old buildings where these great animated films have been made. Walt's office was still up on the third floor, you know, untouched and intact. But they were really trying to to modernize. And Tron felt like this totally fresh, exciting new thing that they were doing. And there was certainly a feeling around the lot like, hey, we're making history. We're doing something different. This film is really going to be different. It doesn't look like anything we've seen before. There, There was certainly an excitement among the crew, like we're doing something cool. (laughs) But um, as for the animation department that I was in, I sat in a room with these other people at a Disney desk, classic Disney desk, a real Disney animation desk that had been designed by the Disney studio with beautiful drawers and uh, drying racks and a place for your pencils. And there I was playing the role of an animator waiting to be discovered as a charlatan and thrown out. (laughs) And uh, I remember one of my first spark tests. It was a test where um, Jeff Bridges is in one of the tanks. They take an incoming hit or something. No, he's in the recognizer, I guess. Doesn't he? He commandeers a recognizer, right? Yes, that's right. And then he's shot at. Anyway, there's something where he's jostled in his cockpit and he's thrown around and the camera shakes and there's some sparks that are tossed off. There's too many of them. So I did those sparks. Oh, cool. And I was new at that and I knew they weren't right, but I didn't know what was wrong with them. And I thought, you know, these, they, they look mechanical. There's something stiff about them. It doesn't look natural. And when I had my first pencil test, I was going to take it to my, my uh, department head, my supervisor, Lee Dyer. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm going to go up to his office with my little pencil test and I'm going to get uh, some feedback. I'm going to get critique. I'm going to get a lesson. You know, I'm going to he's going to look at this and say, oh, well, it's good. But these sparks here uh, should have been should have died out sooner. You've got too much fault through here. Uh, I would reduce the number of sparks. These need to accelerate more something. I was really looking for some animation feedback from him. And he ran it through the movieola and goes, oh, looks great. That's great. All right. Mm. Excellent. And I went, what? And and the point of the story is just that it took me a while. I began to realize that um, nobody was any better than I was. (laughs) You know, coming from Star Wars as I did, and then the few pictures I worked on after Star Wars, everyone was trying to knock off Star Wars that year, you know, Battlestar Galactica and all this stuff. 
Sure. And um, I had worked a little bit on that. So what I was steeped in and trained in and and uh, looking to do then was effects, effects animation. Effects animation isn't cartoon animation. It's effects. It's meant for live action movies. It goes into live action movies. It's got to look like live action. It's right. got to be drawn on ones. It's got to fit in with the live action. It can't have a animated look. But the filmation guys, of course, that's all animation. It looks animated. It's done on twos, uh, if not threes sometimes. And so it isn't effects animation. It isn't sleight of hand, you know, optically printed, uh, a visual effect. Now, what does ones and twos and threes mean? Well, one drawing per frame or two frames per drawing, uh, you know, Ah. animation. They save a lot of work and thus cost by drawing not 24 drawings per second, but 12. All movies are shown at 24, and animation, uh, you can get away with doing half as much. So you shoot each drawing twice, two frames per drawing, you get 12 drawings per frame. That works for animation, but if you're shooting a live action movie, of course you're gonna be shooting at 24 frames. You're gonna have 24 individual photographs for every second. So when you do effects animation, Anything that's going into live action, you're going to draw 24 drawings per second. Right. So everything we did on Star Wars, all the laser beams in Star Wars, the electrical effects, there's not too much animation, effects animation in Star Wars, but there's there's certainly all the laser beams in space and between the, uh, you know, all the lasers in the corridors. Right. That's, that's all on ones, meaning 24. I see. Second. Yeah, and very interesting. Fluid, it looks better. It looks live action, live action. If you were to marry together animation on twos and lay it over live action on ones, it would look funny. Yeah. Nothing wrong. The animation would stand out. You've got to have an individual drawing for every single individual frame. Then it looks like live action. Very nice. So that's a quick primer in frame rates. So the effects animation you see on Tron is going to look smoother. It looks more like live action. It's done at 20. And so that would be true for the sparks and, you know, everything that was done on Tron. So everything's essentially, you know, it's all at 24. As an effects animator, you've always been working twice as hard as other animators. Yeah, you could say so. Exactly. (laughs) So you started by drawing sparks for the scene where Kevin Flynn is trying to control the recognizer and he's bumping into things or crashing around. Yeah. Um, did you have to revise your technique based on that scene? What did you learn from that scene? And how did you go about doing, how did you use that experience to do the remaining scenes? Yeah, there were two more spark scenes to follow that. And like I said, I went back to my desk without any instruction or guidance that I thought I was going to get. So I just left it. I mean, it's in the film the way I drew it. It's in the film, you know, the way that I think is kind of, funky i would definitely do it differently now really um yeah i watched tron not too long ago and and i just think the effects are wonderful and and i can picture uh the sparking effects from the crashes and the the bumps and the the rough rides and to me they're they're just flawless they look beautiful yeah you're not objective (laughs) okay (laughs) i'm not an animator (laughs) yeah i think you're prejudiced yeah probably um, so yeah but it is what it is. It's funny. You put something out and it becomes the thing. And whether this right. any piece of art, whether this is a painting or a piece of music or a, a movie or a script or a scene you're acting or something, once it gets recorded and it becomes the final thing, 
the audience sees it, it's it's fixed in stone, and nobody knows that you wanted to do it better, that it should have been better. No one agrees with you. Um, you know, look at George Lucas. He wasn't satisfied with the first Star Wars, and he wanted nothing better than to go back and fix some things that he didn't right. like when it was made. And, of course, the fans were shattered because yeah, they yeah. fall in love with what it was, and it was perfect as it is, and it shouldn't be changed. Yep, person who made it goes no no you don't understand it it it, it should have been better it could have been better in addition to sparks did you do the disc streak effects as well i shared that with some other people so uh i did my share of them I'm going to say there were maybe three of us doing that. Okay. So they'd be passed out to different animators. And so Mike Wolf did some, and I think John Van Vliet did some. Um, And then we had an airbrushing guy who gets credit for the soft tails on those streaks. Ah. So again, here's an example of the job being broken down and parsed out in, in different phases to different people. So I could draw the... Uh, the, the 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 frisbee throw the frisbee toss but i didn't do the airbrushing on it and the airbrushing was very tricky to do because it had to have follow through it had to have a smooth this is one of the real tricky things that was done on tron this airbrushing you know a smart wise person wouldn't tackle this wouldn't start airbrushing on a single frame that's going to be shown at 24 frames a second you know how could you gauge yeah density of your airbrush from frame to frame now of course the computer would do this effortlessly and perfectly but back then that tapered tail that fading tail that streaking fading tapering tail of the of the frisbee streak was accomplished with with airbrushing you're putting uh, you know black ink pelican ink into an airbrush um, kicking on the compressor and spraying that onto a transparent cell it gets laid over a giant cotolith that has a white band on it, which is something that you drew the day before in black ink on white paper. And it was sent to a lab to make a giant reversal negative, 22-inch negative. My goodness. The whole process, frame by frame, of the way Tron was made was extraordinarily ambitious and, and tedious. And, you know, I want to say unique. It wasn't. Because Robert Abel had been doing all these backlit commercials in the previous 10 years before Tron. He kind of developed that in the mid-70s. Right. Um, but to do that for a feature-length film is... For a feature-length film was a huge leap. And it was one of these things that must have happened in a small room with a small handful of people sitting around going, how are we going to make this movie? You know, I can only imagine who was there. But, you know, Harrison Ellen Sean and Richard Taylor and John Sheely probably and... Well, we could just blow up every frame. Are you kidding? That's 300,000 frames. How else are we going to do it? From what you say uh, and what others have said, this is the time to do it. Disney's looking for something new. They're, 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 on, their, they're on their heels. They need to find something yep. new and take a chance. Yeah. I can totally see the airbrushing in the disc streaks. Yeah. And, uh, after talking with you and I watched Tron again, I'm sure I'm going to be be watching it and watching for it in a different way, you know, just to see uh, the pieces and the techniques. Yeah, um, 
I'll describe one shot to you. Um, I did a series of Frisbee shots in, I guess, maybe what is the first disc game? Uh, I'm forgetting the, the sequence here. I can see the shots in my head, of course. You, you've seen the little uh, video, I suppose, uh, probably. I've got a little piece up on Vimeo called uh, My Work on Tron. Yes, I did okay. see that. Yeah. So that shows the disc streaks pretty clearly. And there's multiple takes in there. So I've got a black and white take. I've got a partial color and I've got a full color. One of the things I did with my streaks that I think made them better with the other streaks, and you'll see some difference. You know, you can look at the movie I can point to and say, oh, well, that's one of Mike Wolf's streaks. That's a Chris Cassidy streak. That's a John <laughs> streak. I made my streaks longer than the other guys did. I thought the streak should have a real long tail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a function of how many frames you're tracing here. And so some of the other guys would... They're rotoscoping, you know, the Frisbee is traveling by and they're going to make the trail last six frames or something. So they're going to ink in the position of the Frisbee and then connect it with the last six positions the Frisbee was in. And now you have a streak or a tail that is what, six frames long, right? And then that tail, which is a a window, it's a clear, it's a transparent uh, open area uh, connecting all six of those frames then the tail of that's going to be airbrushed out. So Greg Battis or Bill Aronce is going to come in with their airbrush and dampen down and darken, fade out that streak. So it's not uh, inconsistent exposure, but in fact, it darkens as it, as it moves across and it goes to black at the end. It's a gradation, you know, right. of grads, short for gradation. They're all the time airbrushing gradations for things. And so every single frame of a Frisbee got a gradation. And this is where the airbrush guys, again, in which there were two dedicated airbrush guys, and that's all they did. They had to be very careful with their densities because as they airbrushed over the cell, laid down that delicate uh, spray of soft you know, ink, the density of that would have to be as closely matched as possible to the one they had just done. Oh, boy. Although slightly darker because the trail is moving so the fact that there's no chatter in those tails uh is is a bit of a miracle because it would be very easy to introduce fluctuation in that exposure so that those tails would flicker or chatter and the degree to which they don't chatter is a credit to very careful airbrush work that they did uh from frame to frame to frame to keep those densities smooth and fluid so you know, they'd want to sit down and really concentrate and not be interrupted in what they're doing so that each frame they do is, is, you know, they haven't, they know just what they did on the frame before and they're darkening it just as much except a little bit more because it's one frame later. And when I did my rotoscoping, instead of doing six frames, I did maybe twice as many, I'm guessing here, but I did, you know, a dozen or more because I wanted the tail to be long. Okay. And there's a particular shot of mine, uh, and I should be able to give you the number, although it wouldn't mean anything to you, but it's TS-29 or something like that. 3056, 99 are correct. Limited 4 and 8 are missing. It's a nice dramatic shot, and Tron is standing with his legs kind of apart. He's got his back. He's sort of leaning backwards. His legs are kind of saddled and broad. And he's reaching up and catching a disc that's coming in over his head. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. Okay. Yes. 
Yeah, and so he's kind of leaning back and he raises his hand up. Well, that streak that comes in is quite long, and that's because I wanted it to be long. It's longer than the other guys were doing. Okay. And, and that's uh, that's arguably the best, uh, you know, disc catching uh, action sequence in the in, scene in the whole film. I would say just that. Yeah. I mean, that, I've heard the stories about how Bruce Boxleitner, you know, actually caught that over his head behind his head like that, and right. you know, that alone is is fun to hear about and talk about. Then you add the uh, the disc streak effect you put in there. Yeah, he did a good job of of catching his frisbee, right? And so so that's an example of me pushing it and thinking, you know, I'm not going to do what they told me here. This needs to be a beautiful long streak, and I'm going to make it long. So, <laughs> so uh, I did. Well, this might be a good point to ask you about. So you you had your version of dailies for yourself. I guess you would get your work back, and and you would figure out whether it was good to go or what you needed to do to make it better and try again? Yeah, not really. I mean, I often okay. I didn't see my own work. Um, Lee Dyer would see it, the department head. We had a stage of pencil testing. Uh, in other words, there's a pre-shoot in black and white to preview it. Um, I don't know if anybody's explained this process to you. Um, when I would finish an animation and get all my drawings together in a folder and turn it in, essentially... It would first be sent off to a, a big photo lab, and they were using an outside lab called G2 Graphics. So my work would be turned into these huge cotoliths, and then they could shoot it backlit. They did it on black and white first, on the lot, in the camera department at Disney, in the traditional pipeline of a, of a Disney animation. It would go to the, from the animation department over to the lab department, then into the pencil testing. They would do a multi-pass shoot, they would first toplet the photo rotors, the giant photographs, the big 22-inch black and white Icon photos that were made temporarily for us to rotoscope from. They would shoot those one by one, frame by frame, on ones, lay down that exposure, then wind down the film, turn off the top lights, turn on the bottom lights, and put my animation down, and do a second exposure following the exposure sheets that I'd written up, and flop through those cells, Again, one by one, taking a frame one by one and burning in, double exposing my animation onto the live action background. And you'd get a preview of the animation in black and white, which meant it was cheaper. It could also be done faster. They developed it right there on the lot. so You could see it quicker and up would come a pencil test. So Lee would call us in. Well, we got some pencil tests. Come in and look. And we'd look at those on Lee's moviola in his office. So we'd kind of all huddle around and cheek to cheek and try to get our heads in there and see what anime ah, Chris this is one of your shots take a look how's it look oh it looks good all right it's approved send it off to so-and-so then it would then they'd write up the sheets in color and it would go to uh, another camera department and be shot again in color With all the elements, with the costume reveals, with the multi-pass, you know, with the eyeball reveals and the costume reveals and the body holdouts and the backgrounds and all the different components that would make up that shot. And that's a big deal. It's real tedious to do that shooting. As you know, every color, every time you see a color in Tron, that's a separate exposure, which means the film was wind, wound backwards in the camera, re-exposed. And another set of cells is flopped. I mean, I, I don't know how thoroughly you've gotten into this, but, you know, the, the whole process of how this is made was just incredibly labor intensive and 
time consuming. Um, That's wonderful. Um, and by that was just a great detail right there of that whole process. And and yeah, uh, others have talked to me about it. Richard um, was the first one I interviewed, and he described some of that process to me, or a lot of it. And and but hearing you dis- and and John Grower also talked to me about it a little bit. Um, I spoke with Bill Croyer. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've been hearing of uh, you know some different versions or additions to that that process, that conversation. But right there, you laying that out like that is just that for some reason. That was clearer. The, the the way you expressed that process was just more, actually, just for more intense. And I think you conveyed a yeah. better sense of the labor involved right there. That was yeah. wow. I mean, this just sounds like sounds nuts. Yeah, it, it is. It is on a handmade, handcrafted level. It's it's extremely tedious building up those exposures. Um, I've often thought that I wanted to do a, a little video. I still do. But I've just put it off years and years, 40 years now. What has it been? 50? Yeah, almost. Well, yeah. Next year is 40. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a light box here. I've got some Tron cells here. I've got some samples of the material. I've often wanted to set up a tripod and just photograph this process just to show what it is looks like to lay down a giant cell. So then lay down a big cell that masks most of that cell. Uh, from light except for let's say the eyeballs or the helmet or or some part and then you put a filter over the lens it has a color and then you add you add another filter that is a diffusion filter that makes the color bloom and gives it a glow and then you make an exposure and then you break it all down and take the cell off and put it over here and grab another cell and you know I've, I've often wanted just for people that were born after this technique was uh, you know went the way of the dinosaurs People that you know weren't born before computers have no appreciation for this manual analog technique, but it, it was quite labor intensive. Um, that would be wonderful. Um, I I encourage you. I'm yeah. going to say please do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I would love to see that video, and and I would certainly put that on uh, on my uh, website along with your podcast as well. Yeah. Would I'd be amazing. Certainly like to share it because as time goes by, it becomes more of a more of a rarity, more of a freak thing. It could be more and more astonishing to people. Uh, yes. As we get more entrenched in computer graphics being the only way to do this, I think people will be surprised that there once was another way to do right. it and to see uh, what was involved. Let me ask you about um, something. I'm looking at a note here from Richard. Uh, he mentions graffiti animation, and I didn't know um, what graffiti meant exactly if unless it meant the artwork on the walls and the corridors and things like that um what is graffiti animation i don't know (laughs) i think maybe did you animate work on the walls like some of the i don't know the circuits or the or the panels and things like that yes i did that was on my list of shots to do i did some of the war map what they called the war map oh yeah right so sark has this headquarters from which he reigns supreme and barks orders at the minion right. whatever and he prances around and you know it's it's drawn from and evocative of other movies that have war maps in them uh of which there's many you know dr strangelove um war games uh you know any any movie that depicts uh you know a strategy room in the time of war or something there's going to be a big map on the wall of <laughs> berlin or whatever you know, the, I guess the most iconic one is Dr. Strangelove. Yes. 
they have Kubrick built this fantastic set. Yes. And there's a joke about it. I think George C. Scott is arguing with Peter Sellers and uh, yeah, they're arguing, says, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Sark has his war room and there's big maps on the wall. And those big maps are graphics that were drawn by Richard Taylor. And, you know, God bless Richard Taylor. He did a bunch of great stuff on Tron. Um, but when Richard would see uh, an opening for something that needed to get done, something creative, often he would just do it because it had to be done. Yeah. And, you know, the, the drawings on the costumes is one example. Right. You know, somebody had to draw that. Richard said, well, I'm just going to draw this thing. And <laughs> he sat down and drew all kinds of stuff. He drew the patterns, you know, that are on the inside of the tank. And um, if I'm not mistaken, that war map is something he stayed up all night, one night drawing because it had to get done. And, you know, he got his rapidograph and his rulers and his French curves and stuff and just knocked out uh, a kind of a computery looking map, which ended up being kind of like a maze. And of course, right. we're trying to evoke video games here. This is the time of Pac-Man and early video games. So he drew a maze that looks very much like the Pac-Man maze. Right. You know, it's no mistake that it uh, is supposed to look like that because we're trying to kind of live in a computer game world. Right. And so there's I, even one there's one scene with the Easter egg of Pac-Man in there. Yeah, well, that's the thing I snuck in there. Oh, you did that. Yeah. Get them. Send out every game tank in the grid. Get them! So I guess I can tell that story. That was an idea that I had that was kind of obvious. It just, you know, it didn't take much for a light to go on for me to think, boy, that's that's the Pac-Man map. <laughs> I remember getting this particular assignment, uh... I just remember that someone came to me and said, um, we've got six shots that have a map in the background. It was some small handful of shots like that. Uh, here, th these are yours, Cassidy. Uh, take these. You, you get, we've got six, six cuts, and they all got the same map, but they're at different angles, and we've already done the skewing. In other words, Richard you know, drew the map orthogonally, just flat as a map. And then, but to get into the scene, it's got to be keystone. It's got to have perspective. It's got to be tipped or something. So someone ahead of me had given that to G2 Graphics Lab, which had at the time the capacity to uh, pinch or distort or give perspective. Now, today we would do that in Photoshop with pinning the corners and distorting it, but there was no such tool available then. This was strictly done photographically. And they would put the map up on an easel and literally tip the map uh, sideways and rephotograph it at an angle wow. and make a codolith of that and then blow that up. So I was given these different maps that already had the keystoning, the perspective built in. And they said, Cassidy, put some motion in those maps, you know, put some stuff in there. It's got a blink or something. Just put, put in some <laughs> stuff, just, you know, some activity. We need some activity in there. Light it up. Light it up. Put, put in some stuff, make it busy. We need some, it's got to have some motion. So that was great. I like vague direction like that because it meant I got to solve some problems and think of something. And I guess I put some motion in there. What I put in there was moray patterns. We can talk about moray. Yes. Uh, but a number of tricks were done with morays, and it was a, a way to get some motion without doing a lot of really labor-intensive individual frames. Um, but I saw the potential to put Pac-Man in there and... 
um, feeling slightly naughty and playful doing so, I just drew the, you know, a, a, a circle, <laughs> a yellow, a yellow dot. And I think I made up three frames. Again, here's an example of how little I knew about animation back then. I mean, I really was a neophyte. I was learning how many frames it takes to do something. I learned animation on that show. I, I want to sort of make this point that by the time I got off of Tron, I was an okay animator, but I was not going into it. I really was pretty green learning how to do animation. I just got up to speed on that show because I had to sit at that desk every day and do something. It taught me to just start animating and then I would see the results and I could make adjustments and, and teach myself how to do this. So in hindsight, I would have made that Pac-Man go a lot faster. So when you see the, you know, the, yeah. the real Pac-Man, he goes pretty fast, you know, jump, 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 yeah. like that. Yeah. Pac-Man goes jump, 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 jump. Right. So and, you've got essentially three frames there, I guess, for different mouth positions for Pac-Man. Yeah, probably was three frames. And it probably would have been three frames, but they would have been more rapid. They would have cycled you know, more, more times per second. Uh, that being said, had it been any faster, it probably would have attracted more attention to itself. It probably would have been more distracting in the background if it had been going at the fast rate of a real Pac-Man. So maybe it was good that it was more subdued and slowed down. But I threw that in there as a joke, and I was pretty sure they were going to laugh and take it out. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, please reshoot that without the Pac-Man. You know, thanks, Cassidy. You know, you just cost us such and such. Reshoot it. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't think it would stay in, but they left it in. And, it, you know, it became one of the Easter eggs. But um, I, I did that to get a laugh out of the crowd. That's really good. You know, having seen that, oh, I, I saw Tron so many times before I actually, I never did see Pac-Man on my own in the movie i heard about it online and then the next time i watched tron there it was i was like i'll be darned there there's pac-man oh interesting and, so you yeah, had to told to look for it that's right it's so it is such a subtle thing i mean it's it's not a long scene you know sark is looking at the map there and there's things happening but there's more than just pac-man happening so i didn't notice pac-man for years right um, well, so that's about right about where it should be then that's appropriate you know not not noticed immediately but but they're on second viewing so that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, when I see things like that, I'm like, well, how does that fit into the story? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, you, you might argue that Pac-Man being on the map and Tron doesn't fit into the story. But but I quickly came to the conclusion that it definitely fits mm. because, again, we're talking about sort of a video game environment. And this is um, the master control program and SARC and they're appropriating programs. It, it might just well be the Pac-Man program was appropriated into into the grid. It makes right. it seem like Pac-Man has been captured by the MCP as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure, or, he's been gobbled up with everything else that's been gobbled up. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's getting into the weeds some. But then again, this is Tron, and the diehard fans of Tron see everything like that, and they, they find a reason for it being there. So that's a lot of fun. Thank you for putting Pac-Man in there. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. I'm um, welcome if anybody wants to make up the backstories for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned uh, moray effects. Is that right? Oh yeah. You want to talk about morays? Yes. What are what are moray effects? Well, 
I believe they're named after a French man whose name was Moray. I believe it's literally named after him. Really, I don't know the the history. I'm sure there's a history to Moray's and his invention of them. But in terms of Tron, Moray's are this sort of pseudo-animation effect that's produced when two patterns are overlaid and that move over each other. When two interference patterns, let's call them, any kind of a, a pattern or a set of lines, if you combine them, lay one over the other and shine light through them, you're only going to see light through the intersection of those two lines. Okay. This uh-huh. is kind of like a like a window screen in front of the blinds. That's a moray effect. Yes. Yeah. When you get a funny thing through the screen, yeah, because you've got repetitive lines, you've got multiple lines, and if two lines are crossing but they're not quite aligned and one crosses over the other, that intersection point will appear to move sideways through the line. Yeah. The, the point of intersection, the common point where they're crossing over, moves as you move one image next to the other. You get this pseudo motion, uh, which is moving in you know, another direction of that intersection point traveling along the line. The classic moray effects, they had a real renaissance in the, in the 60s, in the psychedelic 60s, because it was a great way to create optical effects and so-called psychedelic effects. And the classic moray is the starburst, a series of radiating lines that are radiating from a single point in the center. And if you have two of those and you lay one over the other, offset them to the left or right slightly and rotate it, you get the illusion of a whole lot of dots that are radiating out from the center. Right. Or if you change the direction of the circle, then they're radiating in towards the center. So the two pieces of artwork, of course, there's no dots at all. They're just radiating lines. But you put them together and rotate them, and suddenly you have dots, because the dots are only where the two lines intersect, that moment, that place where they intersect. So moray effects are a very clever way to cut corners with animation. You can create a lot of motion over many, many frames, hundreds of frames, with only two frames of artwork instead of hundreds of frames of artwork. What are some uh, scenes in Tron or or a scene in Tron that stands out for using the moray effect? Well, uh, there's there's a few. Um, the map, they we're talking about the war room and the map okay. of Tron. A lot of the little white dots that are swimming around on that map are mores. Okay. And so th- th- I got a lot of mileage out of that, created a lot of motion and a lot of activity with just a real simple more, two pieces of artwork, one being dragged over the other, uh, and you get these moving dots. One of my favorite ones that I'm kind of proud of where I saved the company a lot of money. Um, there's a scene where Sark is having a conversation with the MCP, and the MCP is intimidating Sark and kind of hassling him about something and uh, threatens him and drains him, drains yes. him of power or something. Yeah, Sark leans back some. He leans back. Okay. So I was told, uh, Chris, uh, Sark is being drained here you got to do something with his arms uh, make it look like uh power is being sucked out of his arms so i did that whole thing with two pieces of art wow that's a really good scene i can see it play out in my head as we're talking about it yeah so the first piece of artwork i just drew some wiggly lines that passed through the whole length of his arm there's maybe three or four at the most five lines that kind of wiggle 
but mostly generally they're just going linearly down his arm toward towards his hands. And I, in order to do this, I had to first determine whether the scene was static enough that I could get away with one piece of art. If Sark had been moving, if the camera had been moving, I would have to have done original art for every frame and followed it. But he generally stays in that position uh, sufficiently enough that I could get away with, with a static thing here. So yeah. I drew those lines over his arm because he really just leans backwards and um, his arms don't really relocate to any new position. So I could stay in that area. So I drew the lines going down his arm, and then over that, I drag another piece of art that's got some lines, and I'm going to say they were probably gentle sweeping curves, like parabolic curves going the other direction. So they would accelerate, I think, as they got towards his hands, and maybe they're slower in the beginning. Uh, yeah. So there's a series of little dots. You end up with just these little dots that are running down his arms. And all that is, is the intersection of, of two lines. Those little dots are just the, the one place where the two lines are, are intersecting. And because I'm dragging one over the other, it appears to be moving down those channels, moving down his arm. That um, is so clever. That's so cool. And that scene very much conveys energy being drained from Sark. It's yeah, very something, right. Something's being pulled down his arm and that's that's what needed to be conveyed. And so that that worked in my in my pencil test. When you look at that little clip that I have on Vimeo, the mic work on Tron, you'll see that scene go by. I think I only have it in the black and white. I don't think I have a color version. And Sark is a little bit jerky. And again, this was just something I did, kind of silly looking back, but I was saving the studio some money and making the pencil test not be as difficult for the cameraman. I knew that he didn't have to lay down all 129 frames of that scene. And I thought, you know, Sark is not moving too much. He leans back a little bit. I'm going to save the cameraman, you know, an hours of work tonight. He can just put down every 10th frame. So I just put down... You know, Sark, picture of Sark, hold it for 10 frames, switch it to the next one, hold it for 10. So when you watch my pencil test, Sark is kind of jerky. He's he's leaning backwards and he jerks as he goes back. OK. At least in my pencil test. It's the only time you'll see that. Um, Interesting. And that was just me saving the cameraman a bunch of work because we weren't testing Sark. We, we knew that. We knew what that looked like. We were really testing just my animation. We needed to see the moray. We needed to see if it worked. We needed to see those dots moving down his arm. And as long as it worked, all I did upon approval was just write that into the exposure sheet. Okay. What about... Um I think this was a different technique. The, the moment when Flynn is transported into the computer and he, he reses up and he's trying to come to grips with where he is or what's going on and the and the yep. guards come up and start telling him to move along and they're they're sticking him. Yeah. You see sparks fly off. I I don't know if that's the same thing or if that's like a, a different kind of a screen or something. Well, there's a couple effects going on in in that scene if it's the one that I think you're talking about and I yeah. I did both those effects. Um. Yeah, so I was given a scene where Jeff Bridges has just arrived in the computer world and the guards come up to him and hassle him and they, they nudge him. They've got their poles and they jostle him. They, they whack him. I said, Hey, 
And I was told, well, do something there where they whack him, you know, and I had to think of something. I, I love the opportunity here. It was a blank slate. I got to solve problems. So I did two things. I put in some classic electrical arcing effects. I drew an electrical bead, electrical arc between the pole and the character in Jeff Bridges. Right. And I had fun drawing that out because as the pole pulls away, the arc is drawn like taffy and it draws out, right? You, you know, it's two piece, two electrical things touching when they touch and then they move apart. You can draw an arc spanning that gap. Uh, yes. A, you know, a dancing electrical arc that spans that gap up to a point the gap is too far and the spark stops. So I exactly. had this little technique that I consider kind of a sig signature technique. But whenever I would draw electricity, the moment that it would stop, I would leave a few residual sparks in there and then I would give them gravity and they would disintegrate and dissolve. But it would be as if gravity overtook them and I'd give them a, a vertical descent. It gives it a realistic sense. And that's one of the hallmarks of effects animation is animation that seems to behave realistically. So falling sparks became one of my signature effects. Yes, that's so cool. That's such a good description of how that works. I think you, you might have done the same technique uh, at the end when uh, Sark is defeated by Tron and he, his uh, helmet splits open and sparks yeah, come out. Exactly. The second effect in that same scene is essentially kind of an echo that comes off of Jeff Bridges. He lurches forward and grabs his shoulder. To create that kind of an echo effect, sort of showing that he gets jostled or he lights up or something, again, I just rotoscoped his perimeter and I put an echo, uh, ah, several frames, okay. and I and I called for that on the exposure sheet that they would photograph these frames and hold them, not just for one frame, but for several frames as it faded out. So you have this little echo and it's only on one side of him because he's moving in one direction. So he's going to leave this little uh, set of trails, echoing trails. And as such, I'm just rotoscoping what's already there. Jeff Bridges has already moved. I'm just following in the echo, uh, the aftermath of the, the after image of where he's been. And it made for a nice effect. It also apparently made for a nice still frame. And so later on, months later, they were needing to come up with some imagery exemplary imagery to put uh, on the promotion of Tron and whatnot. And I'm, I'm going to guess it was probably Richard Taylor or Lisberger or somebody who was probably looking through dailies for like, we need to grab some still frames here because we need some publicity or something. And they found that shot and stopped on a frame and said, that looks good. Let's use that one. And it was that, that frame that I had drawn with the, the, the cascading echo lines coming off of um, off of Jeff Bridges. So they, oh, that's so cool. they pulled the elements for that scene. They chose a frame and then lifted, figured out which frame number that was, pulled out all the art for that frame number, the background, the character, the person, and included, you know, one frame of my animation, one frame of my echo, and reshot it as a four by five and made a nice high resolution four by five as a publicity still, and I've, I've seen it printed. It was actually used on the cover of um, the Walt Disney Studios annual uh, quarterly report, the Disney quarterly report from whatever that was, spring of 1982, and there's that scene. And then later it appeared in a magazine or two. You know, it, it was one of the images that they 
they pulled up when they needed to do uh, publicity or have a magazine illustration or something. So I was kind of proud that they picked that out. And yeah, the the killing of Sark was another conspicuous effect that I did. I was glad to be given that shot. Um, so I remember looking at that, being given that and saying, whoa, look at that. They split his head. They've actually got his head open. How cool is that? Yeah, now they want me to do something. What am I going to do? Well, you know, his head's cut open. Maybe it's a computer. Maybe there's some sparks. Maybe it's some electrical stuff. Put some activity in there in his head. Yes, totally. And that's that's as much of an instruction as I got. That gives you a lot of room for for creativity, doesn't it? Yeah. Nobody said, you know, put in a big spark, which I did. You know, put in a big single exploding spark. But I looked at the shot. He's slowly, you know, arcing forward. He's coming forward. He's going to fall on his face. And I thought, boy, there's a real moment in there. You know, that's a three-second shot or whatever it was. There's a real moment to put in something really cool there. You're very persistent, Tron. I'm also better than you. So I said, I'm just going to put in this big spark, this big explosion and and make it make a exciting moment there and have a little cascading gravity affected the little residual sparks falling down for contrast. Wow. What an honor to be able to do that shot. I mean, that that's the moment we've all been waiting for as we watch the film. We're waiting for Sark to to be defeated and to, to be the person. Yeah. Uh, to be the person who gets to do those effects for that shot. And you really nailed it. You just conveyed the whole you know, breaking down and, and defeat of Sark is falling apart and is short circuiting and just dripping yeah. to the ground. Just his energy is falling to the ground. Yeah. There's three in a row there, uh, that I did. And I'm remembering the numbers. It was TS 29, TS 30, TS 31, TS. Now, are those scene numbers, Chris? Yeah. Okay. They broke the thing down into scenes and they gave a two letter, a two letter prefix and then a number. Okay. And so I can't remember too many of them right now, but I remember TS definitely. And okay. TS stood for Tron Sark. Oh. And so that last battle where Tron and Sark are, are battling each other, uh, all those shots were TS something or other. And I see. one with the big spark is TS 29. And then TS 30 is a further shot where he's rather small and he falls on his face in a big wide shot, a master face, he falls to the ground. I've got some sparks going over his body. And then the third one, I think, is TS-31, and it's closer up, and I've got those sparks kind of running around his body. And there's two effects. There's some electrical arcs that are kind of arcing him to the ground, like little like little ropes. I think of uh, Lilliputs and uh, Gulliver's Travels, the little lines coming yeah. off his body, anchoring him to the ground, right? Yes. And then also I was told to make lines run around his circuits the the lines on his costume the circuit lines on his costumes i had the energy kind of race around those circuit lines and that's a separate that's another another thing so that's ts31 i guess so they brought me these shots as a group you know the 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 death of sark it's a sequence and so i was glad to be given you know for continuity's sake here's the sequence here's whatever this is it three shots was it more? I don't know. It was at least TS-29, 30, and 31. It's a sequence, and I was glad to be given, you know, some shots back-to-back that are going to follow each other so that I can uh, hook them up and marry them together and do something cohesive for that sequence. 
And I thought, well, what do we got here? Here's the bad guy. His head's been cut open by a Frisbee. It's really gory. They've literally severed his skull and his brains are exposed. Then he falls forward. And what? He's going to fall on the ground. And what's going to happen here? His brain should spill out, shouldn't they? I mean, wouldn't that be what happened? Your brain's cut open and, and you fall forward. You're going to, he's going to, I've got to have some, something spill out. What, what can right, I, right. let's do something gory here. So here's where I showed some initiative and and also a little bit of playfulness, maybe. But I was thinking, well, we've got to have some brains on the ground. I've got this close-up shot of his head on the ground, face down. There's got to be some brains there. And so I was thinking of something soupy and, and gooey, and what can I put in there? So I got kind of clever, and I, um, I actually did something at home with my camera. I made an element. Um, I was trying to think of how to photograph a puddle of some kind. And so in my kitchen, I made up, um, I made up a little pancake batter and, uh, and mixed in some Cheerios to give it a lumpy quality and, oh, wow. and made a little puddle and um, poured it out on my kitchen table. And I got my Nikon, uh, my 35 millimeter single lens reflex black and white camera, put black and white in there and shot a series of pictures at maybe a three quarters angle looking down at the table of a puddle of brain schmutz or something. And it was pancake batter with some lumps in it. <laughs> You know, using the full studio system, which is available to you, think about the, the the way, the historic way that films were made and that studios were organized and that studios were structured, especially a large movie studio like Disney. You know, nowadays this system is, has uh, fallen apart and things are subbed out and there's subcontractors and there's vendors and there's boutiques and you go to this company for this thing. But with a wonderful classic studio like Disney, you have departments. You've got a prop department, a set department, a wood shop, a, a um, you know a, a animation camera. You've got studios. You've got stages. You've got artists. You've got airbrushers. You've got inkers. I knew they had a black and white photo lab, a pretty robust photo lab that had been there you know since the beginning, since the 30s. So when I would shoot black and white in my camera at home, instead of going to my local photo lab down the street. I'm on the lot. I give it to the Disney photo lab, you know. So the following day, the lab, I get a little note on my desk or something. Oh, your film's ready to pick up over at the lab. And I walk across the lot to the place for the photo lab. And now here it is. You know, I'm just picking up my thing. And there's my roll of film with all of my little puddles. And I pick one that works and I circle it and I give them back to him. And I say, give me a couple eight by tens of this and then give me a four by five transparency positive. And that's the one I used in the film. Wow. So I wow, get, wow, wow. you know, and if gone to another lab, I would have paid good money for this, but it's all in house and they have the equipment and you have the confidence. You can just walk up to the lab and say, you know, I want a couple proof sheets. I want an eight by 10 positive and I need a four by five positive transparency that I can strip up for backlit animation. Boom. You know, they have it the next day. So cool. So somewhere, among these things, I think it's actually in the, if you know where to look, it's in the pencil tests, um, that black and white reel that I keep referring to, the thing on Vimeo called My Work on Tron. Um, okay. you, can, you can see this puddle. And 
I was kind of keen to know how this is going to go over. I haven't told you sort of the backstory about the the hierarchy of the different tiers of employment uh, in this in this production. But um, there are uh, low level and medium level and high level people getting different salaries. And like I said, as an animator, I'm near the bottom, but I'm not at the very bottom because below me is an assistant animator and an in-betweener. But I'm not as cool as a scene planner like John Grower, Michael Gibson, Dina Burkett, Don Button. These guys were scene planners. They got to go to dailies. I didn't get to go to dailies. I literally was not cool <laughs> permitted. You know, it was not part of my job description to be at dailies. Right. Whatever decisions were made at dailies were made outside of me and beyond me. And then I would find out what I needed to find out. I was given directions or something. Yeah, we saw your shot in dailies. It didn't work after we do it, but I didn't get to go there. But I was kind of cocky <laughs> at the time, you know. I was uh, full of myself and kind of cocky, and I didn't think the rules belonged to me. After all, I just worked on Star Wars. So, and in Star Wars, you know, we all did everything. We weren't a big institution. We were a guerrilla team of maverick film students that were all, uh, you know, in our early 20s. And we weren't going to take orders from anybody, whereas Disney was the opposite. It was this ossified institution of great history and, you know, great lumbering uh, inefficiency. So I knew when dailies were. They were at one o'clock. They were after lunch. I just made a point to slip up to dailies, which was on the third floor after dailies had started, which means the lights were down. And I would just enter the back door and stand in the back <laughs> of dailies in case one of my shots was up. The guy knows what you're up to. <laughs> I didn't do it a lot. But if one of my shots was going to be up, I wanted to see what it looked like in the big screen and color. And also, if they're going to say anything about it, I want to be there to hear what they say. Like, right, right. like animation or they didn't or whatever. So when I knew this brain shot was going to be in this spilled brain, which is kind of gory, I went up there and sat in the back of the room and, you know, was a fly on the wall sneaking into dailies. And I remember them saying Richard Taylor specifically himself said it looks like somebody threw up. That's what killed it. <laughs> it looks like puke. <laughs> Um, we can't have, looks like somebody's vomit. What are we going to do? All right. All right. <laughs> so that night I went back to my kitchen table, my little house in Beverly Glen. And I happened to have some watch parts or did I smash up a watch or something? I either broke up an alarm clock. I got myself a bunch of little mechanical parts, little gears. I think I smashed up an alarm clock and I made a little uh, pile of mechanical parts, gears and watch parts. Okay. And same thing and photograph that. And that's what got in the film. Right. Okay. That's what I thought I was remembering seeing. Yeah. Less pancake batter, more mechanical parts of a yeah. program. Yeah. It's it's a it's a clock that I smashed up or got the parts from. Just a few little gears and, and cogs and, and mechanical parts. And then I threw some color in that. Again, I photographed that, took it to the lab at Disney, asked for a four by five positive transparency. They made me that. But it was monochromatic. And so just before sending it off, I thought, you know, everything's colored in this movie. It's got to have some color. So I took some colored Sharpies, you know, maybe a red Sharpie, a blue Sharpie, a yellow Sharpie, and just added a little uh, color variety to that pile of parts. So when you see it, you know, you don't see it for very long. It's not very big, but you do get the feeling that something came out of his brain and that it's mechanical. And it's just Definitely. a just a little four by five black and white transparency of some clock parts that I added some color to with a Sharpie. 
and that's Sark's brain on the ground. <laughs> that's that's amazing. That's that's wonderful. That makes me think of the video you sent for the Tron 30th anniversary. The Tron 30th was really quite the big deal. They did a great job with that. A lot of work was put into that. I love Richard for this because he comes up with these great ideas. He's very creative in, in figuring out really cool ways to tap people for, for what they're good at. And in this case, he came to me with exactly the right request. Now you're the best program that's ever been written. You're dogged and relentless, remember? Let me add him. That's the spirit. He wanted something to, to show on the curtain uh, before the show as people were taking their seats. I just started throwing things together. I think there's a fair bit of or mores. I think I used mores in there. And ah, uh, okay. I'm going to have to look close at that now, now that yeah. I know what to look for. Yeah. And then this other technique that I call cascading that I'm very fond of, doing an echo an echo effect where you repeat the animation uh, with changes. So you have maybe a dozen or 15 copies of the animation, each one frame staggered, delayed one frame, creating an echo effect, and you end up with a trail. You know, that's why it's called a cascade, because it's something following something. The, the echoey trail, the same thing we talked about in that, in that one effect uh, off of Jeff Bridges when he's struck with a pole, there's a little echo there. So, right. I'm leveraging that technique. I'm using it uh, to get some, it's it, it's kind of pretty to look at, kind of an eye candy sort of a, a thing, but there's something pleasing about seeing an echoing image, a cascading image playing around. I made two four minute pieces and I'm gonna have to come up with the other, that's the second four minute piece. There was okay. another four minute piece that I have to find. When I gave it to Richard, I neglected to clarify that there were two four minute pieces. It was stupid of me not to combine them. And he used the second four-minute piece. And I forgot to say, wait, there's another four-minute piece. So it didn't get shown that night. Oh, uh, maybe save it for the 40th. I don't yeah. know. You know, as you're saying this, I'm just realizing, oh, yeah, there's going to be a 40th. Okay, let's dust this off. And uh, I should revisit that, maybe modernize it. But maybe most of the work is done. Repurp- I love repurposing things, you know, getting more mileage out of something when you've already, you already put the work into it. Yeah. So... That thing was a really well-designed production. It was really neat to see everybody there. They had a great Q&A. They put up a great panel. Jeff Bridges showed up. I think Bill Croyer and Jerry Reese showed up. The scene coordinator got to see all them again. And then they took over the disco upstairs for the night. They brought in a really great DJ. They had a light show. They had lasers. They had all kinds of projections on the walls. They had a museum that like the entryway has glass cases. They filled up the glass cases with artifacts, with memorabilia, with props, you know, the costumes, the helmets, the exposure, yeah. or whatever kind of memorabilia that they could scrape up. They found a bunch of stuff to put in these glass cases. So you walked through this entryway of Tron memorabilia on display. You got inside. There was a DJ. There was a costume contest, which people did some wonderful things for. It was a pretty pretty big deal, Tron 30th. Well, I just know that fans of Tron are going to love listening to all of these stories you've shared with us. Thank you, Chris, for speaking with me on the I.O. Tower. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's, it's fun recalling all this and reminiscing over all this. I enjoy it. It was certainly a cool time of my life, a heady time of my life. It was really exciting being part of that production, to being on the Disney lot, to working on something so unique. So it's it's definitely a fond memory, you know, in my career. Tron, I loved working on it, loved 
being part of that production, mingling with all those interesting people, coming up with cool stuff. So I, I definitely look back fondly on those, on those Tron days. It was a cool time. Music from the Tron soundtrack. Additional music is Lighthouse by Rory and Give Us Color by Zen. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support the IO Tower at iotower.com. Until next time, I'm your host, David Fleming. End of line.